Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are chatting with Jessica DeMarcus. I actually had the pleasure of meeting Jessica on the other podcast, Everybody Holds a Story, and knew I wanted to share her story here as well, which doesn't happen very often. So I'm excited for this conversation. Jessica is a therapist and life coach. She's a licensed therapist, certified life and success coach, NLP practitioner, hypnotherapist, as well as registered yoga teacher. She works with high achieving women to ditch the anxiety, doubt, and stress through her integrative approach that blends her training in Western evidence-based psychotherapy with Eastern philosophy. She supports women through one-on-one and group coaching, as well as her podcast, Unlearn to Level Up. As we dove into this episode, there are so many things that hits home with me personally, as well as I know there's so much you're going to be able to take away from Jessica's knowledge. As she shares everything here, you're going to start to understand and see that awareness, creating discrepancy with your thought patterns, acknowledging how it's hurting or helping you, and looking ahead in time to see which patterns are going to create the change and which are not. Our subconscious patterns, we repeat in cycles constantly until we increase awareness and do the work to break the cycle. And she dives into so much value here and expertise to really share these pieces on our thoughts, as well as her expertise on self-care, boundaries, burnout, the feelings of safety and certainty and receiving and resentment. It is an unbelievable episode that is going to blow you away and you're going to absolutely love it. Welcome to the show today, Jess. We had to hit record because Sue was going to have a bird with us if we didn't. <laughs> okay, so first off, I anybody who is listening, I do have two podcasts, this one and Everybody Holds a Story with my friend Sue. And I, we had the pleasure of interviewing Jess on that show. And I don't tend to bring too many different, like too many guests on repeat, but yours was an absolute no brainer. So I'm thrilled to have you here. I'm super excited to be here. And I'm glad you pressed record because we were talking about just potential topics and we were like, wait, no, (laughs) this needs to be included. Uh, So I'm pumped and ready to go. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So can you tell people where you are from? Yeah, so I'm from Philly, but I live in Raleigh, North Carolina now. Um, me and my puppers. Um, I also have some property on the beach, so I split my time. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually going to be going to the beach in two weeks for the winter seasons to kind of recharge and 
recollect and all the beautiful things. And then um, in the warmer months, I'm downtown in Raleigh, living it up. Mm, beautiful. Oh my gosh. I just had this moment of like, 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 oh my God, I wish this is our writing season. This is what we tend to call our writing season, our work season, because it's dark and cold and all the things. So yes, mm-hmm. I live vicariously through you as you go to the beach. Yes. Well, same. I, it's such a beautiful, slow, um, quiet environment in the off season. And for me being the type of person that I am, I really need those moments of recharge and recollection and regrounding. And not only does the water do that for me, but like being in slower environments does that for me. Um, I love being in it. I'm a city girl, like from Philly. Um, and I just love the hustle and bustle and grittiness of it. And I can definitely tend to get wrapped up in it because my natural state is more, bigger, better creation. Um, so I've I've just noticed for me over the years that environment plays a big role in my energy management and um, really blessed to be in the position where I can split my time now. It's been really helpful. That's great. And I honestly, like I can already, my brain is wanting to write down notes because I'm like, oh, I want to touch on that and touch on that. It's like, how long did it take you to recognize that you need the environment to slow down in? So um, probably in my 20s, long story short, before I entered the coaching industry, I was a trauma therapist and I am also a trauma survivor. And I realized I was actually in a therapy session in my 20s um, going through a trauma treatment because I was subconsciously repeating a cycle that I was unaware of in my childhood or that I was not consciously aware of. Mm-hmm. And she literally called me out and said, you know, Jess, you are such a hard worker. You're so disciplined. You do everything. And... I think that that might be maladaptive coping for you. Mm. And I literally was like, what? Like as a therapist, like super self-aware, right? Mm -hmm. Um, This woman calls me out and she's like, yeah, your performance, your busyness is actually a really heightened form of avoidance and numbing. And this is how I can tell. And so that session was life-changing because for the first time I was able to see the double-edged sword of my performance. And um, I started to realize that my work environment played into that. The relationships I was creating played into that. The cities I was choosing to live in played into that. And so I started just intentionally seeking out quieter environments. So yoga studios, silent retreats, um, more secluded vacations. So instead of doing like Italy and Rome, which again, like first world problem, such a blessing to be able to do that. I started um, doing things like Cambodia and like really rural, rural parts of like Costa Rica and like just these more quiet, um, local, non-industrialized environments. And I realized I came back creative, present, connected. And I was like, I need to create this in my life. This, this can't, this is a non-negotiable. Um, and so just worked really hard to find a way to create that. And, and by my situation now is how I've been able to do it. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Give us a little, just a snippet background of story of yours, because I do want to lead into this piece on like subconsciously repeating cycles and patterns. Like we're all doing it. 
we're, most of us are not aware that we're doing it. And that's why it's a subconscious pattern that you're repeating. So I just want to dive into a little bit of your backstory that leads into that. Yeah. So um, like you said, without going into too much mm-hmm. um, detail, also, if you're listening, just trigger warning, right? Be, be aware. Um, so I actually come from a family, particularly on my mother's side, that um, after doing some some really deep work had realized that it goes back like four or five generations of um, trauma repetition. So there has been a Unfortunately, like every single woman in my mother's side of the family for four to five generations has experienced sexual and physical trauma. And um, it was almost normalized. Not saying that everyone was, you know, invalidating me or expecting it to happen or, or or not being supportive. It's just like it was kind of not talked about and it was almost just blindly accept it from a place of powerlessness, not a place of it's okay. Mm -hmm. And um, what's interesting is again, in my twenties, I subconsciously found myself repeating it because I had become aware of it by training to become a therapist. But what's interesting is because it was so deeply ingrained, not only in my personal psychology and upbringing and environment, but Again, I didn't know about like epigenetics and things like that in my DNA, in my history, in my body, Mm -hmm. um, that I ended up in a relationship of eight years that actually was very similar to that trauma. It was activating it and repeating it in ways that on the surface looked different, Mm -hmm. but to my body and to my spirit and to my mind were actually the same exact thing. And it took me actually stepping up my game and and really putting my money where my mouth was and not only seeing my therapist and talking about things on the surface, but actually seeking out someone who specialized in that and investing the time and money um, and, and energy into doing a structured program, intensive type of therapy, and really doing the work in between sessions with and for myself. Um, And I will say, even with all of that, that I still find myself being triggered and being activated and finding flavors of that in interactions, whether that be dating or relationally, but I just have a, a deeper layer of understanding and a deeper toolbox of skills that I'm able to acknowledge and, and, and disrupt Mm-hmm. that baseline and that conditioning a lot easier now it's 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 still takes effort but mm-hmm. i'm i'm way more aware and able to do it with a lot more ease oh thank you so much for sharing that and i i often think like the people who have the biggest toolboxes have come through the stories and they didn't like i say they i i resonate so much with what you're saying and the fact that didn't know exactly how to change it, but was willing to try a whole bunch of different things to do it. So I would love to talk about some of the things that have made a big difference in your toolbox. I think it was a couple things. Um, One was actually doing trauma work. 
So not just talking about it, because here's the thing that I realized again, when I was working with that therapist in my twenties was I had a understanding. I knew it. I could talk about it without getting activated, but I was, I was only working cognitively. I was not actually going in and identifying how does that make me feel emotionally? What's going on in my body? How am I repeating these patterns behaviorally? All I was doing was saying, this is what happened. This is why it happened. (laughs) And this is what I could do differently moving forward. Now I will say, even that can be therapeutic. So if that's where you're at in your healing, high five, keep it going. Mm -hmm. And there are different levels of healing. And for me, it was deeper than just being able to say it, which was super powerful for me, by the way, especially coming from the background I came from where again, like it wasn't like accepted or encouraged, but it wasn't talked about because it was like common knowledge, but to actually say, Hey, I experienced rape. I experienced this. I experienced violence. And to say, I am a survivor of trauma Mm -hmm. was massive for me. So healing. And that was only step one of my healing, actually saying it and, and acknowledging it. Then there was a whole level of, wow, what emotions does that create? That creates fear. That creates hyper-independence. That creates um, maladaptive forms of seeking safety that you know created this drive to protect myself at all costs to the point where I will damage my own well-being to protect myself, right? So so I had to go deeper and really understand, okay, this isn't just what happened, but how does that make me feel? How am I coping with that? How is that serving me, hurting me? And really getting into my body and noticing where am I holding this? How do I release this? And it was not linear and it was not quick. I did breath work. I did somatic work. I did yoga. I did solo trips. I started a meditation practice. Um, I worked with therapists, coaches. I did group therapy, which is actually really empowering to share space with other people who could identify with what I was experiencing. Cause there was so much shame and, and, and being in a room with other women who were in different stages of their healing, some behind me, which was empowering. There were some ahead of me, which was also empowering. And and there was some right where I was, which was so supportive. Um, So, so I share this also bluntly because I want to kind of articulate that it's nonlinear. It does take time and it looks different for everyone and that's okay. But if you hear anything I'm saying, identify it. And, and, and the cognitive piece is the first layer. (laughs) There's so much more. It is the first layer. And I, I mean, I thank you so much for everything that you've shared because I think this cognitive piece of recognizing that like consciously and our, our brain is only like, we are using 5% of our conscious brain. Right. And, um, the rest of it is just the subconscious on repeat over and over. So cognitively being able to say, wait a minute, like what, like, what am I doing here? And then I think one of the big pieces there is to be able to do that and not apply shame to it. Like I was good at cognitively saying, oh, like, oh, here you are again, here you are again. And this undertone of shame. Now that also comes from, that's what I knew growing up. That is like, this. literally what I knew growing up in the fact that we don't talk about difficult things. We certainly don't share our feelings. We don't express them. And it's like, suck it up, move on. Now there's 
I'm not like bashing my family. I'm just sharing that was the times and that's what we did. And when I experienced um, an assault at 12 years old, it was a case where I actually had to be the one to bring it forward to my parents and to police. And we lived in a super small village. Like it was very, I can't even call it a city. It was, we didn't have a stoplight and one school. So it was very like traumatizing because I was, I was seeing these people on a regular basis. And I remember when the day was done with the police and I, and I've shared this before, but it was a piece that my parents were like, and we will never talk about this again, go to bed. We're never talking about this again. I'm like, okay. And I remember being very confused and thinking that must be because I did something wrong. And I don't consciously remember that that that's the subconscious story that I continually told. And when we're told to shut things down, that's what we do. And it requires breaking that pattern. So I just want to share that one piece because I think that that's an important piece is acknowledging it, but without shame or judgment or criticism. And understanding, Marsha, that phenomenon that's happening in the sense that you didn't consciously make that decision, but you have to understand that you are making these decisions, creating Mm -hmm. these beliefs and having thoughts with a 12-year-old brain. Yeah. A 12 like, year old a hurt brain, right? A yeah. hurt. I was, it was very, I mean, it was horrible. It was a horrible experience, obviously. And I actually think that the time after that was equally horrible and hard because showing face, being called a liar, being called all these things and feeling very isolated. So it doesn't, it's not just the instance. It's the story we make up about the instance that is real for us. And then we carry that story everywhere we go. And when you're operating with that belief system and that story, our brain is scanning our environment for only situations and opportunities that prove us to be right. See, there it is. That is so true because our brain's job is to keep us safe. It's literally its job, right? So that's why I often say, and I've said it many times in a sense, like, don't trust your brain. Cause that's like, literally don't go there for, cause it's, it's a vault of all of your past information. So if you actually are trying to think and create in the future, the brain is the last place you want to go to. Yeah, exactly what you're talking about. We have evolved, but our brain has not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. There are some practices you can do to activate those more evolved parts of your brain, but as a 12 year old, mm no one's sitting down. Well, I don't think a lot of adults do even know how to, right? But no 12-year-old no sitting down and has the capacity to challenge their brain, evaluate the evidence, create healthy thought patterns, acknowledge, wait, this isn't my fault, right? Wow, that's a projection. <laughs> 12-year-old is doing that. But what ends up happening is it becomes so emotionally charged and deeply ingrained and, mm-hmm. and repeat it that like you were talking about, it gets stored into the subconscious. And then we operate out of that for the rest of our lives. If we don't take time to acknowledge and evaluate it. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. There's so many things that I want to dive into one thing before we get too far away from it. And I just want to acknowledge and share this piece for anybody who's listening. You mentioned that be open to trying multiple different types of therapy. Like I've, I've done multiple different types of counseling and therapy And I have to say it was thankful for persistence that I found some of the ones that were beneficial. And when we were going through a really difficult time with our kids, God, we could not find anything to support us. Um, 
And everywhere we went, it was groups where people were talking about traumas that were, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I'm not saying that like, but as a parent, when you're in crisis or if you're in crisis, it's like, I need help right now. Like, I don't want to carry that for 50 years. How do I possibly do that? And we went to a group parent program and that was the best thing we've ever done. It was by far the best thing we ever did was a group therapy program. So I love that you mentioned that. And I just wanted to just touch on that for a second. There was so much shame I had to overcome, especially going into the space as a therapist. I definitely feel right. Right. I definitely put the pressure on myself. No one was judging me when I was there. I was just, I was not just a therapist. That was something I was creating in my head and carrying myself where it was like this unevaluated expectation that I shouldn't have problems or should be able to work through them on my own because I'm a therapist. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Actually, the fact that I am a therapist and am in therapy should be a source of strength right? That I have the awareness and the courage to do the work that I'm encouraging my clients to do. Um, but, it, but it's interesting. Like the, a lot of times, yes, there are external barriers mm-hmm. and a lot of times it's actually the internal ones that are way more of the obstacles to overcome. Oh yes, 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 yes. And I'm laughing because I knew you were about to say the word, but, and then you stopped yourself and said, and, and I'm <laughs> laughing because that I do that all the time. Like, it's like, The word, but for anybody who's listening, like the second you say the word, but you have just negated everything that you've said. And so even when I get ready to say it, I'm like, and (laughs) I just, (laughs) well, it's interesting that you caught on to that and that I didn't even notice I did that, but here is the testament to consistency, right? This is something that I worked on in therapy probably a decade ago and I've practiced it over and over and over again, where now my I've trained my brain because of neuroplasticity to do that. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's just a word, but it's really mm-hmm. empowering and, and, and helpful that my brain automatically can do that, mm-hmm. where I am creating space for both, opening my brain to multiple possibilities, not discounting what I or other people are saying and that I can do that automatically. And it's because I've trained my brain Mm -hmm. to do that. And we can train our brain to do that with anything, not just a word. So this is where I want to go then is training your brain. So somebody is listening to this. I want you to speak to the high performing anxious female who is, I mean, we all know this is a very big percentage of the population of women who are in entrepreneurship. Let's just be real. And speak to that female who might not even realize that this is an issue and what she's doing. So maybe what would be some clues to see some ideas, some things that pop up and some steps that you would work with with them? Yeah. Well, first things first, I always start with creating awareness, which is really funny for the high achievers because they get so frustrated working with me because they come in wanting the answer. What do I do? How do I crack the code? (laughs) Yep. She just called it. It's all good. (laughs) And I always say, I go, you're going to get frustrated working with me because I am not going to enable this distorted way of functioning that yes, has served you, but now maybe hurting you. Right. And so I always say, we're going to start with awareness. And so I would ask them, Hey, 
where are your areas of stress? What are the activities that you find yourself doing that um, leave you feeling drained or fatigued or upset? Um, What are the thoughts under that? I'm not good enough. My coworker's better than me. I need to hit six figures like my best friend. Um, I'm not using my degree. I should go get another degree. Like, what are the underlying thoughts when you really think about the behaviors that are causing the stress or the insecurity that you're coming to me with? And then when you feel those things, what do you do? And what's usually interesting is that line of questioning shows them the cycle they're operating out of because it reinforces all of it. It's really cyclical. And so with that awareness, then we move into creating discrepancy. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. How's that working for you? And usually it has worked and it has served them. And, and, and again, this is the non-judgment piece. I'm not beating you up for, for doing this. It's it's actually helped you. High five. Congratulations for being so resilient, for being so disciplined, for being so focused. It's beautiful. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying we're going to abort mission. And <laughs> next question, how is it hurting you now? Mm-hmm right? Mm-hmm. Next question. Let's take it a step further. If nothing changes, yeah. what happens in a year, in five years, in a decade? Oh, interesting. In a decade when you have kids, how does it not only impact you? How does it impact them? Because it will. It will. Yeah. How does it impact your marriage? Mm-hmm. How does it impact your ability to be present with your parents when they get older? How are you going to feel when you're 70 and looking back and this is how you operate it. This is how you felt every single morning, mm-hmm. right? So then we create that massive discrepancy, which is very uncomfortable, but it's a necessary part of change. Mm-hmm. That like discrepancy between your values and how you're operating, mm-hmm. that self-inventory. And then from there, we'll move into, okay, what do you want it to look like? So we'll future cast. In an ideal world, if we removed barriers, so this is that conscious to subconscious piece, right? We got to get them out of that 5% and into the subconscious. And how I do that is using hypotheticals, right? Hey, if barriers were removed, if you could wake up tomorrow morning, right? If you had all the money in the world, if you didn't have to work, right? Like just creating hypotheticals so we can get that into that, get them into that creative part of the brain. What would be possible? What would you go after? What would be fulfilling and meaningful and exciting and joyful for you? What would make a life worth living? What what would you not just strive towards, but actively cultivate? And then we finally get into the how. <laughs> we'll get into the problem solving. We'll get into the tips and tools and, and, and methods and, and habit building and all the things. But that's the last step. And oh, thank you for laying all that out for the listener, because that is a really... That's a powerful process through. And it's so funny because as a like high performance functioning anxiety, whatever you want to call it, female entrepreneur, like the how is almost always the first question, but how, but how, how do I do that? Yeah. And it needs to be the last. I always tell people instead of how, what, why, why, what, how. Mm-hmm. You're doing it backwards. And actually, I have an entire episode on my podcast about it because it's something I talk about with every single client. You are prematurely asking the how, because here's what's interesting. When you can get real clear on what's happening and how it's not working and why you want to change and what you actually want to cultivate, the how actually comes a lot easier. The how comes a lot easier. I couldn't agree more. And I often go back to the fact that 
if I'm trying to figure out the how, I'm using my brain that got me into this position in the first place. And the how is the only is only based on what I know today. So that means there I've left no room for possibilities. So I often I, I'm an evidence person. So I often will make myself go back in my own history and go, where did I not have the how? And how did it turn out even better than I could have imagined? Because I have to look for proof. Like that's part of my process to be able to shift my own thinking to get out of the how. Well, that's a really powerful method, right? And it's actually really common in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? What is the evidence for your thought and against your thought, right? And what's interesting, what you're talking about, Marsha, is reference points, right? And, And here's what's really cool. Yes, we can do it that way. Okay, you're lacking confidence. You're fearful about this job interview. You're scared about having this conversation with your partner or running that marathon. Go back in the past and think about and consciously recall because the brain filtered it because it can't hold on to everything. Go back and really spend some time in there digging around with a flashlight. When have I overcome a physical feat? When have I felt doubtful and still crushed it? When was I uncertain about? an interaction that turned out better than I could have imagined, right? Now, here's what's interesting about that methodology. We can actually flip it on its head and use it in the opposite way, meaning, okay, I don't know what I don't know, but how could it be possible that in the future, I could crush this interview? I could handle this difficult conversation Mm -hmm. and actually create hypothetical scenarios in your brain of best case scenario, because here's what's interesting. The brain can't decipher fact and memory versus thought and creativity. Mm. Fact and memory versus thought and creativity. Just the brain cannot decipher between them. No, it's going to create an emotional reaction of both. Yep. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. Yes. I love all of that. And one of the things that I do, I run a little scripting um, micromind every year that we do. And it's just like, it's not, it's not goal setting. It's not a vision board. It's like, um, how do I want this year to turn out and how will I show up accordingly? Not how am I going to sit here and wait for it to happen, but how am I going to show up? And the reason I said that is that one of the questions that comes up, one of the First questions, once we actually go through very similar to what you've said here is, wouldn't it be cool if, and we go through the, wouldn't it be cool if, and I can watch people on the screen and I'm like, it's going to take you about five to seven responses before you can get past your conscious mind to get into like what you really, really want. And you can almost always see the emotions come to the surface, the feelings, the like, and all of a sudden people start to drop ideas. They're like, where'd that come from? Like, where did that come from? What was I like? Where did I think of that? And so asking these open-ended questions like this is really powerful, especially if you are trying to break the pattern of asking how, and you do want to create something different in your life. 100%. And that's where the hypotheticals come into play. So really getting creative with those types of questions. Wouldn't it be cool if, if I won the lottery tomorrow, if I could take a magic pill tonight, um, if I was, you know insert idol's name here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Who can help me with this, Mm -hmm. right? If I was on stage giving a TED talk of my incredible life story, Mm -hmm. what would that sound like? What would be 
my, my turning point. How did I make it happen? Right? Like getting into the hypotheticals helps us get out of the conscious brain because the conscious brain only has the past reference points. And when we're talking about like hypothetical getting out of the conscious brain, I want people to know that like your, (laughs) your subconscious doesn't know time right? It doesn't know time. It doesn't know past, present, or future. It doesn't know what's real and what's not real. And it's interesting because we can get stuck in this loop of like when, and I think as soon as we attach the when to it, we've kind of screwed ourselves in a sense because we have closed off other possibilities. Does that make sense? hundred percent. And that's the thing with high achievers. And I'm guilty of this. The reason I can talk about it so deeply is because hello. Right. I see you. Yeah. So I think that that is a self-imposed barrier when we get rigidly attached to how it needs to happen. We think of every circumstance, we come up with this super detailed plan and it, and, and we expect it to work out perfectly and we force it, right. It needs to happen this way. And if not abort plan and start over versus being clear on what we want, Commit it to making it happen and being open to how it actually comes, how, who, when, right? And that being committed versus attached, I think is a massive, it's subtle, but it's a massive shift in the energy as you are cultivating and pursuing something. And, you know, for me, I love reading autobiographies of really successful people because it really attests to that. Sometimes we see them, like I just read, regardless of your feelings about them, Will Smith's autobiography. And it's a really Mm -hmm. beautiful example of when you are just committed and you just keep showing up, things happen. And and my favorite line in the book is the world is more magical than logical. (laughs) And you don't always know how things are going to unfold or evolve. Mm -hmm. But if you are committed to co-creating and being open and working with what you got and pivoting versus pausing, your success is inevitable. That's the difference. He didn't get lucky. That person didn't have access to something you didn't. They just remained committed and open to the how. And when that opportunity presented itself, that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, God, I, I love... Um, autobiographies because they they often, they show the backstory, right? We look at a person at where they are at today and there's like 50 chapters that got them there, but we never see the 50 and we look at it and think of it. Like I heard Kevin Hart say, he's the overnight success that took 40 years to happen. Like, and, and I listened to his book on Audible years ago and it stuck with me because He's like, you're listening to it. I'm getting invested in the story. And it's like, okay, this time, this time it's going to work. And all of a sudden it all crashes and burns again. And he has to start over again. And I think that again, if you're, I'm again, I'm realizing I'm an evidence person that gives me that reminder that a, the destination, like the journey is always part of it, right? We're learning as we go and we never know someone's full story, which means that all possibilities are available. Yeah, 100%. And two things based off of that, Marsh, is number one, I think with high achievers and perfectionists and women who struggle with like insecurity, imposter syndrome, that's something that happens. They're comparing their step three to their step 30. Yeah. So with my high achievers, I always say, let's, co- if you want to compare, you really want to go down that rabbit hole. Okay, fine. Let's go there, but find an accurate comparison. 
Mm-hmm. And you know what's funny? When they actually do, they're crushing it. Okay. So for every female that's just listening, just please know, like you definitely fit into this. You do. And I love that you said that because when please compare like an apple to an apple, like compare the exact same apple that grew at the same time that came off, like compare to the same thing to the other, because that's the only fair way to do it. Yeah. hundred percent accurate comparison. You know, it's funny when you start doing that, what you'll realize is there really is no accurate comparison, right? Like if I can't compare myself to my sister, who genetically is the same as me, grew up in the same house, ate the same food, went to the same school, (laughs) wore the same clothes. We slept in the same bed. If I cannot compare myself to her, Mm -hmm. there's no one else, right? Like I am literally my only competition. The other thing that you said about the Kevin Hart thing that has been a thought that I consciously cultivate in my brain, again, training my brain through repetition Mm -hmm. is how could this be working out perfectly for me? Mm. Beautiful right? When things don't work out, when things change, when unforeseen circumstances happen, literally asking my brain, okay, brain, before you go down the rabbit hole, pause, stick with me here for a second. Mm -hmm. How could this be working out perfectly for me? Mm -hmm. And then if I really am struggling, I'll go back like you did, Marsha, and be like, okay, how did I in the past find myself in a similar situation in the sense that things didn't work out? The plan fell through. Things blew up in my face. The door got shut on my face. I got denied the job. I lost the money and that needed to happen for me to achieve blank. Mm -hmm. And I just remind the brain, everything is always working in your favor, even if you don't understand or like it right now. Oh yeah. You might. Yeah. That does not mean you're going to like it. That is hundred percent. I, one thing I want to really um, just edify you just right now. And for anybody who's listening, please know that this piece on like coaching yourself never stops. And I often say this because sometimes people, and I, I, I will get comments sometimes where people will be like, well, it's easy for you because you're strong or you've got the tools or whatever, whatever story you're telling yourself. Like I often will respond now that that's your lens of my life. That's not my life. That's your lens of my life. And how we do that and how we see it is really important. But I often say, if you could see how often I coach myself every single day, and it wasn't until we were in our master's immersion that my roommate, she said that to me. She's like, I think you have to start to share that because I don't think people have any idea how often you do that all day long. And I do, I own that. I a hundred percent do. Cause it's a slippery slope for me to go back this way and to fall into a pit. And once I fall into that pit, it's like, oh my God, do I have to really climb the mountain to get myself out? So I work on coaching myself regularly and I can hear that in you. So speak to the person who's like, okay, what does that mean coaching myself all day long? I know you said it, but I just want to kind of wrap that piece up for people to- Yeah, hundred percent. The work never stops. We're humans. We have brains, life has circumstances and there are very little things that we have control over. We have influence over a ton and that's the place you want to operate out of. Okay. Mm -hmm. But life is life. That's it. And we choose our problems, right? Like just because I'm an entrepreneur and single doesn't mean that I would have less problems if I was an employee married. Like we all have problems. I'm just choosing this set of problems, right? So just want to kind of acknowledge that. In terms of coaching myself, it happens every single day. It happens formally and informally. Formally, every single morning, 
I do self-coaching. I journal, where's my brain today? What emotions are present? What's going on in there? What's the inner voice saying? Is it helping me? Where do I need to focus? What are the thoughts I want to cultivate today? Um, How do I want to focus my time? Um, I have a lot of habits and rituals in place to like really kind of get my brain and body on the same page. I I do a lot of cold showers. I do a lot of breathing exercises. Um, So again, there are some formal and then informal practices like you know, this morning I had a conversation with my partner. We had a little bit of a bickerment last night. I'm not perfect. Hashtag human. Um, and this morning I had a little bit of residual emotion and I had to catch myself getting a little snippy on the phone. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, interesting. I'm getting snippy. And I could tell by his reaction. And so I paused, I took a deep breath and I said, what is the thought making me irritated? Is it true? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't decipher it myself. So I asked him, hey, I'm having this thought. Mm -hmm. And he literally was like, that's not what happened. That's not what's true. And I said, okay, well, what is true? Mm -hmm. And he told me, and then I immediately felt better and I apologized and I moved on. Like sometimes it happens in the moment and I I have to catch myself. So again, I have formalized self-coaching with myself. I also have a coach and a therapist right now. I usually always do, (laughs) right? So So I have that as well. And there's this, these informal moments where I don't catch myself until I already feel the feeling or already I'm doing the thing. Or sometimes I don't catch myself until there's a nasty consequence I have to face. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Awesome. That is so good. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for being real with that. Because yeah, sometimes I can really catch it fast. And sometimes it's not until the behavior is in a full flown, like blown temper tantrum of an adult that I'm like, what, Marsha, what are you doing? Like literally, what are you doing? And it happens and I will laugh at myself and I'm like, I just have to say, I'm sorry. I don't know where all this is coming from. For me personally, and I, I want to ask this of you for me personally, one of the first things that I, when I fall into that trap is the peace on ownership, the peace on radical responsibility. I stop and think, what am I not doing that I know I need right now? And it's almost always some form of self-care. Self-care can be a nap. Self-care can be quiet time. Self-care can be whatever. Um, But when you have a, you've created a job, a career entrepreneur that gives in a big, deep way, sometimes you have to give yourself even more time to recharge. So I just wanted to ask that question, state that question and share it. Because again, I do know that some women listen to this that will are going to resonate with every single word you're saying. Okay. So I don't think you know this, but let me just share. You touched on Pandora's box. I actually have published research and spoke on self-care like mm-hmm. in academic journals I because <laughs> yes, because I like I teach at a graduate level on self-care like this is my jam. <laughs> so, Perfect. let me let me acknowledge that um and and then pull back and and stay focused on the topic. So, yes, when you are service oriented mm-hmm. and are a massive part of the change cycle energetically mentally emotionally those invisible gymnastics and emotional labor i personally think and have again published some research so i'm not the only one who thinks this there's some evidence here it is a career sustaining skill and an ethical responsibility to take care of yourself 
And how you do that is proactively and holistically. It does not happen as a reaction. It does not only happen when you need it, that that is not effective self-care and you have to do it holistically, meaning addressing all your domains of being versus just your body. So not just physical self-care, but mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, financial, vocational, like this does not happen after five o'clock or on the weekends. Okay. Like you have to come up with these preventative, proactive, career-sustaining self-care activities for multiple areas of your life. One, two, they have to be flexible. Like my self-care is going to look different when I am a new mother versus when my kids are 18. My self-care is going to look different as an entrepreneur versus as an employee. My self-care is going to look different as a wife versus a single person, as someone who lives in Alaska versus on the beach. And that's okay. Like we have to acknowledge what works for us Mm -hmm. and we have to create rituals around doing them consistently so that we don't reach burnout. (laughs) Like that is preventative that like we can prevent burnout. Like, yes, 70% of individuals are walking around burned out right now, but it is something that is preventable and self-care is the solution. Yeah. It's hashtag. And people can be like, Oh, self-care. That's just being lazy or being selfish. Pick up a book, do some research. (laughs) This is a career sustaining and a health sustaining practice. Oh my God. Am I ever glad that I brought that topic up because you could tell it was something that is like, I mean, it's honestly gold, so much gold you gave us there. And if we tie this back into some of the words that you've used, I think self-care is you have your own toolbox, right? You know what serves you. Like, I don't care who you are listening to, you know what works. You might get swayed by, oh, it's the 5 a.m. club. I have to do 10 minutes of this and 15. And I did for the longest time. I was very much like regimented that it has to look like this. And now my self-care is a whole big mixed bag of what do I need today? And sometimes it's like, oh, I need it like four or five times today because my I'm just in that space. What do I need today? And that's that piece on self-coaching. So I love that you said that because I think this is, you're right. Your self-care is going to change at so many different points of your life. So please don't get caught up into the comparison of what others are doing for their self-care and find something that makes you feel like your best version. 100%. And sometimes self-care can be boring. Like your self-care might not be a yoga class. If you don't like yoga, okay. Go on a walk, garden. Maybe your self-care is calling the OBGYN. Maybe your self-care is buying a water bottle. Maybe your self-care is solitude. Maybe your self-care is engagement with others. Like it's okay if it takes five minutes, five hours, five days, like it's your practice. It's And the question you asked, Marsha, I 100% would second. So simple. What do I need today? Mm-hmm. I need, considering my needs first, I'm on my to-do list today, (laughs) need and today, because it might be different hour to hour, day to day, week to week, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I do want to touch on the word burnout just before, because I know that that could be a podcast like episode on its own. But as somebody who literally, I mean, I I was your ideal client. That's who I was, to be honest. And I still, again, slippery slope. But the burnout piece was something that would show up probably two to three times a year. And 
I used to judge that as why can't you just do more? Meanwhile, my more was like triple what some people were doing, but it still wasn't enough for me. And so I want to talk to you about like, how do you recognize burnout and maybe any thoughts you have on it for people who are listening? Yeah. So um, just to reiterate, so I can say focus, because again, this is years and years of research. So I'll define what burnout is symptoms so you can recognize it and maybe a couple tips to prevent it. So burnout is um, a phenomenon that happens to anyone. Anyone can experience burnout. Mm -hmm. Um, And what it is, it's a combination of um, typically work-related stressors Mm -hmm. paired with poor coping strategies. Mm -hmm. So we're sharing that responsibility. You could have the best coping strategies in the world and still experience work stress. That's different than burnout. Burnout is complete mental and emotional exhaustion and depletion. Again, as a result of work-related stressors paired with poor coping strategies. So again, that's why I said it's a career-sustaining practice and a wellness practice because work-related stressors are going to happen, but how do we buffer them so that they stay work stress and don't turn into emotional exhaustion and mental fatigue and burnout? So that's what it is. Some symptoms to kind of pay attention to are, again, it's more than stress. It's you are exhausted. You feel depleted. Maybe you're getting sick more often, unexplained. Um, You are irritable. You feel less connected to your work. Um, Maybe you are starting to kind of notice some other trickle-down effects, marital discord, weight gain, poor coping an increase in numbing and avoidance, such as sex, technology, alcohol, other substances, Um, maybe insomnia or anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are some symptoms that might signify, wow, maybe I'm burned out. There are also some like formalized assessments you can grab online. Um, Christina Majlash, um, oh God, I think I said her last name wrong, but she is actually has been doing research on burnout for the last 40 years. And she has an inventory online that you can look up. It's M-A-S-L-A-C-H. So there's a standardized assessment you can take and kind of look at, but it looks at, again, how am I managing my stress? How is it affecting my emotional, mental well-being? And it's more than just being overwhelmed or stressed. It's it's depletion and fatigue. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of things that you could do to kind of manage it if you are experiencing burnout is... um, seeking help, right? So asking for some support, identifying it and communicating that, asking for support from your colleagues, your supervisors, your partners, your kids, (laughs) your friends. Mm -hmm. Hey, mommy is a little stressed. And so I'm going to start locking the bathroom door and I really need you to just play on your tablet while mommy's in the shower. Like it could be as simple as that, right? So asking for support. Um, If the work-related stress is a massive contributor, really having a transparent conversation around what are your boundaries? What are your needs? What are some um, things that could be shifted in your workplace environment to help you feel supported? Here's the interesting thing about burnout um, research. It's never about money. Everyone thinks, oh, if I just got paid more, I wouldn't be so burned out. It's not it. It doesn't show up in the research at all. It's actually work fit? Are your values aligned? Do you feel a sense of community? Do you feel valued? 
Do you have a place to decompress after stressful work events? Those are actually the things that make a difference in terms of burnout. So those are a couple of things you can do personally, self-care practice, asking for support, and then professionally, if again, that work-related stress is really contributing to potentially some burnout. Oh, thank you for all of that, honestly, because that is just, I know there's a lot of books and things available on it now. And again, it's a topic that's talked about more, which I think is so incredibly important. And I know that there's just so much value in what you have just shared. Now, as we are in this space and you like, this is the work that you do, right? Like this is the work that you get to do with clients. Do you work one-on-one? Do you work like, what does your practice look like? So I work with um, one-on-one primarily, and then I have um, a training for newer coaches. So it's funny because we were talking before you hit record about some of the things that we're working on. And um, I have a program called the Art and Skill of Coaching. And so I teach newer coaches how to go deeper with clients Mm -hmm. versus just that surface. Okay, here's what you do. Wake up at 5 a.m., journal, change your behavior. It's actually teaching them how do you go deep? How do you identify what to work on? How do you focus a session? What questions are going to get clients to a deeper state of transformation? How do you create sustainable change? So it's actually just blending the best of psychology, coaching, all the somatic work, the NLP cert, the hypnotherapy, the yoga teacher training, all the things I've picked up over the last 12 years of this being in this industry and sharing with people kind of my methodology of coaching and, and teaching them. This is how you support a client. Um, so like I said, I work with people one-on-one, but for newer coaches, there's also a training program that I have. Um, and that's really fun. Just sharing these modalities and interventions and tools with people um, because then I get to help more people on a larger scale, which is cool. Which is exactly right. What we all want to be doing is reaching more and more people. And there's so much value in this piece of learning how, like learning how to go deeper with your clients, learning how to get to the root of the issues and not the surface. I think we like, (laughs) we can get surface anywhere, go to Instagram, like you can get surface stuff anywhere, but the deeper stuff, like the actual lasting change for our clients is really powerful work. As long as we're always doing it ourselves too. 100%. And that's part of it. And that's why I called it the art and skill of coaching. Mm -hmm. I do think coaching is more than giving advice. I think it's more than sharing content. I think it's more than just listening. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a skill set there, I I believe. And there's an art form there where it is a practice, right? We are always learning and growing and in it with our clients too. And um, I think that really blending the two of those is is the sweet spot for transformation, um, both for the clients and the practitioner. Mm, beautiful. Thank you for sharing all of that. Honestly, this has just been such an incredible conversation because there's so many things that I know are going to speak to so many. I, I say women, but men and women, like we all know that this is this is a piece of it. One thing that I want to touch on just to ask your opinion on it, and I know we talked about it with burnout, we talked about it with self-care, is this piece on asking for help and allowing ourselves to receive. When you are the um, perfectionist, the pusher, the person who's like, nope, it's the badge of honor. I do it by myself. I can do it by myself. Speak to that person because I know, like I can, I, I would say that receiving is one of the most difficult things I see women going through on a regular basis. And I I did too. 
it took actually having multiple surgeries and not being able to even function on my own to being like, okay, I have no choice but to ask for help. And then it's like, oh, it's not that scary. Actually, it doesn't have to be that scary. hundred percent. So, so I'm going to give you a question and then I want to talk about that. Yep. Yes, you can do it. Mm-hmm. You could probably do it better. You could probably do it faster, <laughs> but at what cost? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Yeah. Okay. But at what cost? And if that cost is worth it, high five, do it. If you want to, that's fine. But if that cost is not worth it, then lean into the discomfort and ask for help. And I think you took the words right out of my mouth, Marsha, in terms of how come it's so difficult. I think it comes down to safety Mm. for most people where I don't want to ask for help because I don't trust that I can depend on them. And if I think I need this for insert reason, Mm -hmm. it's safer to just do it myself. Mm. And so I think that is where we have to intervene. Instead of encouraging you to go too far too soon and just ask for help from anyone (laughs) for everything, Mm -hmm. who is a safe person Mm -hmm. and what feels safe to ask support for? or delegate or get help for start there. And then you can create corrective experiences. And now like bringing it full circle, if you feel uncomfortable asking for help in the future, you can go back and be like, when did I ask for help? How did they help me? How did I, how was that okay and safe and that they showed up for me? We're reprogramming the brain that there are trustworthy, dependable people. Mm -hmm. It is safe to ask for help. It's very vulnerable. And that vulnerability is going to bring up that safety piece. And so again, I think it's going deeper and really understanding what's happening behind the surface. It's not that you, you know, always just are like, I'm just going to do it. Sometimes there's a deeper function in the dysfunction. And it's important as a coach and as a provider to bring that awareness and ask those questions and intervene at the root, right? Now, I will say too, that it's not always dysfunctional thinking. Sometimes there's an actual skill deficit. So a lot of times I'm actually coaching clients. This is how you ask for help and, and giving them the vocabulary. This is how you say no. This is how you set a boundary. Sometimes I am literally teaching right? That's part of it, building that skill set. Cause no one ever sat down and said, this is how you say no without being a BITCH or being rude, right? Yeah. This is what assertiveness is. This is how to communicate a boundary. So sometimes it is a skill deficit. Sometimes it's dysfunctional thinking. And I think off, more often than not, especially with this particular population, again, men and women, or just mm-hmm. individuals in general who struggle with perfectionism and, and you know, um, imposter syndrome, that it's more of a question of safety and certainty and, and more so than embarrassment or shame. That's part of it. But I think if we go a little bit deeper then that, that might be what's going on. And so intervene there, who's safe, what feels safe to delegate and then create those corrective experiences and just build and build and build. Yeah. Stack those habits and stack it. And you definitely hit there. I I couldn't agree more. Safety and certainty are like, they are a core, core limiting scarcity belief that we like so many things can come back to like, am I safe to do this? And one of the things when you said there about receiving that I just want to really just touch on for a second is that you might be able to, if you're a listener, you might be able to just, you know, I know it's hard to receive and all these things, 
But if something that you're doing is bringing up a ton of resentment, then it's not okay. Like there's something missing in the connection. So if you don't want to ask for help or you think, oh, no one's going to help, whatever. But if the resentment piles into us, it's an emotion that I think is actually a compass for you. Like it can be a real compass for you of what is missing or needs to be changed. Emotions are warning signs. They're evidence, they're information. Like don't judge them, get curious. Like, wow, I'm feeling angry or scared. Yeah. That is information about what's happening in your brain. A lot of times subconsciously, because that emotion is going to be percolated even before you understand the thought. And that's what happens a lot of times. We don't actually understand what's going on in our brain until again, we have an emotion and or, or acting a certain way. And we're like, oh my God, why am I doing this? Um, so yeah, if you struggle receiving, like really pause and be like, wow, where's this, is this resentment? Is this fear? Is this vulnerability? And how do I intervene there? A lot of times the difficulty receiving is it's so much, we've created this thought. It's so much safer to just do it ourselves. It's we're, we're I trust myself more. I, I depend on myself because growing up X, Y, and Z need didn't get met by the people whose job it was to meet it. So how can I trust my boss? How can I trust my partner? How can I trust my friend? And we have to really evaluate that thought and create experiences to challenge it and create evidence to really um, help us create healthier beliefs. So yeah, if you're experiencing difficulty receiving, can you receive from yourself? Then can you receive from people you do trust? Then just again, build upon that and, and, and work on that skill. I'm not saying, again, don't go too far too fast and reinforce the belief by giving being vulnerable with everyone and giving everyone the blanket trust and, and, and sharing your needs and hoping they're going to show up to support you because we're human and we're fallible and you're going to be disappointed. But start start where you are, start small, and um, you'd be surprised um, who show, who's willing and ready and able to show up for you. Mm-hmm. Oh, so much gold there. So much gold. And one of my favorite quotes, Brene, Brene Brown says it. She has, I have a lot of favorite quotes from her, but this one is like vulnerability without boundaries is manipulative. It they vulnerability requires boundaries. That means that you don't share with everyone, you don't ask from everyone. Not everybody needs to know every single aspect of your story. It's like like what be specific. And I love that. So it's again go back to safety, right? As soon as you start throwing all that out there vulnerability-wise, I feel like if you're not in a good space to speak, ask for help or share a story, you're just going to attract back more to you what you don't want. And that becomes very confusing when you're like, but wait, I don't want to feel this way, but why is this all I'm seeing? Because you're still in a space of anger. Yeah. hundred percent. And you talked about it, Marsha, like operate from a position of choice versus crisis. Yeah. Like yeah. right now you have a choice to practice this, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Oh. Be aware of that because it will get to a point where you'll be in a crisis and you won't have a choice. And we can still learn a lot when those things happen, right? We've all been in those situations where it's like, oh, I missed all those warning signs, but they were there. <laughs> they were there. Yeah. Yeah. So no judgment. Just like, can we take some self-inventory and be like, okay, brain, listen up next time. Okay. Yeah. We yeah. will deal with a little bit of discomfort to avoid this. Well, I love, I have loved this conversation, honestly. And I know there's just so much value you've given to people who are listening to create that change. Where can people connect and follow you and learn more about you? 
So I'm really active on Instagram, right? So just come hang out. Um, it's Jess underscore Demarcus underscore coaching. Um, and I have a link in my bio with all kinds of fun stuff. So my podcast, the unlearned to level up podcast, where I go deep on these things. Like if you really enjoyed our conversation today, you would love the podcast. Cause I talk about all these things in 10 to 15 minutes every week. The clips are very short. Um, so my podcast is on there. My website's on there. I got some freebies on there, like journals and, you know, guides to kind of help with some of the things we talked about today. So always coming from a place of service and wanting to add value. So if you go to Instagram, you'll get access to all of that and more. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing and for this conversation today. I've really enjoyed it. I do have one more question for you and it is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? Mm, This is a beautiful question. And if I knew it ahead of time, I probably would have had a couple different answers, but just trusting my gut and and that this is what needs to be shared, that there is a lag time between your intuition and your cognitive understanding of things and to trust your intuition. Oh, no one has ever said that before. So there's a lag time between your intuition and your cognitive understanding of yeah. situations. Trust yeah. your intuition. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Cause there are so many times that my intuition, my body, my gut, whatever you want to call it, my spirit, my soul knew something or was saying something, but I cognitively didn't get it. I didn't understand it. I didn't feel ready. I didn't feel prepared. So I weighed it. Mm-hmm. And, um, sometimes that got me in trouble. And what's interesting is when I learned this lesson, this was years ago, I was actually meditating in a temple in Cambodia and it it hit me clear as day that when I've listened to my intuition before my brain understood it, I eventually understood it, but sometimes it happened like months, years later, Mm -hmm. but I was so grateful that I trust it myself more than my brain or the external world. I'm not saying being impulsive and emotional. There's a difference between that and intuition. And that's a whole nother conversation, but just understand that sometimes, you know, before you understand, and it's okay to make a decision from that point. That's an, that's, that's enough information and evidence and don't let anyone make you think otherwise. Yeah, that was just an absolute mic drop. I love that. Like, you know, before you understand. Yeah, it's, and if you want to build a relationship with your intuition, start following it and just get feedback and just go, oh, okay. Cause I, I, my intuition has had insane, like insane synchronicities that have happened. And so sometimes even the craziest thing will happen intuition wise. I'm like, that is nuts. But it's like, you know what? That did that was not an accident. There was a reason why that dropped in. And it's almost always been pretty much bang on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That was a beautiful question. I'm glad that that's what was shared. And um, it's it's hard work though. It takes a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's worth it. Mm-hmm. 100%. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. Oh my God. Loved it. As always. So different than our previous conversation, but just as valuable. It's incredibly valuable. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. 
please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.